Hello, Whiskey Files, and welcome to another episode of Pot Still Radio. As always, I'm your host, Matt Heady, Chief Editor of PotStill.com, your independent Irish whiskey resource where we distill and analyze all the news and releases in the market today. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, the Irish Whiskey Magazine, the only magazine in the world dedicated to sharing the exciting news, lifestyle, and spirit of Irish whiskey. You can find out more at irishwhiskeymagazine.com. And the Tua Glass, a contemporary nosing and tasting glass, a symbol to unify Irish whiskey drinkers across the world. And you can find out more about this beautiful glass at tuaglass.ie. Steve Glare Gakina, Paul on Shut A Potstill Radio, Is Misha Maihu Haley and Yoni, August and you, Tom Lesh on Udor Fnon O'Connor, August on Ian Yua, Brina Huinia, Brina Huinia, Paul on Shut A Lads. So, welcome guys to another episode of Potstill Radio. This is the second of uh, season two, which uh, for you guys at home might be a couple of weeks since you've listened between the first and second episode, but for us it's been mere moments. Uh, so welcome to the show, gentlemen. Brian, you, you get to talk in this episode. Okay, so, uh, very good. So welcome. <laughs> welcome. I suppose this entire second episode is deep diving into something that's been, I suppose, confusing, topical, of up for a lot of debate recently. I suppose discussion rather than debate. And that is GI around uh, Irish whiskey. Now, not so much as to debate the GI. Um, I suppose, Brian, you're here to give kind of some of the, the factual background uh, as opposed to what kind of pointed the GI in, in the direction it ended up in and, and the documents that's, that I suppose build on it. And then, Fanon, you're going to add your historical uh, points to it. As we left off in the last episode, this was the Apostolus Distillers giving their historical view on, on the mash bills. Very fitting, Fanon, you have filled our glass with uh, a little bit of something here. So why don't you introduce what's in the glass, and then I suppose we can pass over to Brian to talk about a little bit of the history of the GI and technical documents. No problem, and thank you, Matty. I've been looking to taste this for a long time. I keep these samples on the desk as nosing samples, and I try not to, to drink them except on special occasions. But... What we have here is Bow Street distilled in the 50s. So Bow Street whiskey, this is particularly Red Breast. Bow Street would have provided, of course, Red Breast, Green Spot, and its own Jemison whiskies. And following, you know, one thing that struck me as problematic, and I think more of a talking point that it's been given attention for, is under the current geographical indicators, technical file, definition of pot still. A large number, in fact, the prevailing number of historical pot still expressions, not even old history, but stuff from the 50s, stuff that is still collected, the drinks that have basically provided the gravitas for having a style at all. Napogue 1951, Old Powers, Old Jemison. By their own confession, by their own labeling, when you look into the history, they don't comply. And this is a problem and I'm not as concerned I'm not a distiller I'm not I own no controlling stake no stake whatsoever in any brand whatsoever but as an enthusiast and I think an enthusiast who spent an unusual amount of time waxing lyrical about the modern incarnation it does trouble me that we could be in a position where we've retconned the grandfathers of the style even and again not looking into kind of old history the actual old precedents out of out of the family and as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's staggeringly untenable. 
I believe that there are solutions. I believe that there are ways of getting around it that can encompass to various levels of conservatism, liberalism, versions of the style, but they're not being done. So I wanted to start with Redbreast that's not pot still. <laughs> not anymore, at least. Not anymore. And uh, I'll show you what we got here. A bundle. I've just done a printout of a, a number of you know, those reams of this bloody stuff. Problem interviewing researchers. There's just papers everywhere. Too much stuff, yeah. So here's some old Bow Street material. So there's an old bottle. That's actually a Jemison bottle rather than a Redbreast bottle. Uh, again, right. fantastic. Can you for, read? Fanon's ability to show uh, visual cues to a microphone like <laughs> are staggering. So but can yes. you read that out? Uh, John Jameson Son Limited distill one quality only uh, of pot still whiskey for sale throughout the world. The materials used as manufacture are solely, and this is in giant capital letters, malting barley, wheat and oats. I assume I wasn't to shout that. And every drop of the three star brand has been matured in oak cast for at least seven years. So if you look at the history of the style, you know, you get like Andrew Jameson's definition in 1908. You get the Irish Pot Still Distillers Association records, which we talked about last week. And you get labels like this or, you know, promotional material from uh, Bow Street. So this is a pamphlet called Sovereign Liquor that was put out in 1950. And it says, JJ is not a heavy all malt whiskey. The recipe calls for unmalted barley with other cereals, wheat, oats and rye, as well as malted barley. Now, the rye there is interesting because that's not on the other one. But funnily enough... If you take Andrew Jemison's definition and you take the IPDA definition, which is very, very similar and postmarked from Bow Street, and you take their own labels, bar a sudden, silent, universal change of practice, this is what those members were doing. And if you lay stock down in 1953 at the bare minimum, the seven-year-old, let alone the 10 or 12-year-old expressions of the 60s, basically everything before the creation of before Locks and B. Daly went to wall and the remaining three amalgamated. You know, I want to say up front, modern pot still is incredible whiskey. You know, I think there's a lot of internal industry debate and I'm not as interested in who did what or who thinks what should protect whom. I think there is a problem of cultural inheritance at stake. And I think a lot of the current brands have as great if not far greater claim to this heritage than most but i have been very frustrated with some of the response that's come out some of the the justification which i i i wouldn't agree with to put it mildly but i wanted to start and you know it's funny especially when you find these bits and pieces you look at like say old cumber which is a classic old pot still would not qualify now i found the actual day books for old cumber napo 1951 b daily uh, leo Phelan of the Irish Whiskey Society sent me a wonderful pamphlet from B. Daly that outlined their use of, again, barley, wheat, oats, and rye. When these have been grandfathered out, we're left with nothing but a very contemporary imagination of pot still. And I think a, a big problem in the logic that's gone around with the, the, the current GI is that dissent or historical interrogation somehow weakens the pitch, you know, undermines the Irish whiskey sales pitch to the GI. Now, this is just patent gibberish. You know, GIs across Europe are meant to protect procedural or productional inheritance of food and drinks items. It's not the responsibility 
and quite frankly, not the right of a food industry to make a pitch. The whole idea is exactly the other way around. The GI is supposed to protect what that food industry do or what they should be inheriting. And I think that logic, when I see it, is sits far more nastily with me than the actual status. I mean, GIs are amended all the time. A, a brief look through GI procedure, and I'm sure Brian can, can touch on that. But I did want to talk, and it's the awkward intersection of the PhD with the current stuff. You know, most of my research is in slightly further back history. And it has to be said that, like, again, a lot of the terms that we use today, single malt, these concepts are modern creations. They have a heritage, certainly going back in productional history. But when we start using terms like blend and so forth, and, and I mean, the term pot still whiskey doesn't, isn't a thing before the invention of the column still to compare it against. You know, you can't be pure pot still without a blended alternative. But even without that, when you look at how Irish pot still defined itself, especially by the 20th century, in opposition to all malt whiskey, and certainly into, again, the, the 50s, the last old guard producers, the collectibles, and you're telling people who have championed for 50 years the existence of a style when there was no legislation, when there was no international audience, again, it, it just makes me a little sad to see the stakes not being addressed as I would prefer to see them addressed. I suppose that's a, a lot of a lot of research pitched on the back of that. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's I suppose it's a, a good point to turn from the historic to the the, the more recent as well, Brian. If uh, you know you've been doing a lot of research into the technical documents, I suppose that inform uh, the EU declarations as well as the technical file, the 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 different documents that came before, during, and I suppose after the GI. So I suppose, first of all, you know, can you give us a brief overview of what a GI is for for those not not familiar with the term? Yes. So, um, but to define a a GI, so a geographic indication, basically protects the name of a spirit drink originating in a country, region, or locality where the product's particular quality, reputation, or other characteristic is essentially attributable to its geographic origin. So, as Fionn was discussing earlier, it's about trying to prove that Irish whiskey existed and we have a right to call this drink and this liquid in front of us Irish whiskey. And particularly to allow this term to be protected legally, uh, either within the, the EU and also with trade agreements with other partner blocks. Um, I mean, my interest in this stemmed from going to a lot of different events around the country. So uh, I go to a lot of whiskey events uh, as I'm very interested in the subject and enjoy tasting it like uh, everybody here. So even across the country, so like Kilkenny and Cork and Dublin, suddenly it would come up that people would go, well, you know, what, what particular, what's the, re- the reason for having this pot still not being a pot still anymore? So there was a certain uh, product from uh, Kilbegan called a uh, small batch rye, which had a slightly different percentage of mash bill. So different type of grains included in it. And I remember someone saying to me, oh, you know, that should be a pot still. I said, going, oh, what do you mean that should be a pot still? It's, it's called a, a rye. And I was told, well, because... Before this technical file existed, uh, it would be determined to have been a pot still because it had enough malt and unmalted barley in it to uh, to call it a pot still. However, a file is in place that doesn't allow that to take place. So I just got more interested in wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? Everyone would be, I asked about it, would give me a different response. 
or a different so you, definition. So you decided to deep dive into the actual technical files that surrounded it, which has kind of led to, I suppose, culminated in the article you've written in the, I suppose, what is going to be the most recent uh, 2019, uh, I think, July or August edition of the Irish Whiskey uh, magazine. Yeah, so, so exactly. So you kind of d- outline all of the, the actual technical documents that, that inform everything there. Exactly. So, uh, and, you know, it, it's not, it's not a... It, you know, it means a lot of reading and uh, downloading of files from the EU and uh, from the Department of Agriculture, but they all tie together and they all cross-reference each other, as I'm sure Fiona has great fun doing things like that every day as well. So um, his, his files might be a little more physical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Microfilm is yeah. a little different from downloading. That's it. And downloading and easier to search as well. So yeah, well, so, if, yeah. if you're not reading you know, Victorian cursive, <laughs> illegible... <laughs> Uh, so uh, the, the the idea is if you if you download the technical file, the one that everyone was used to reading was one that was dated back in October two thousand and fourteen, uh, and that was up on the Department of Agriculture website for a long period of time. Maybe to talk about what's the reason for that file existing in the first place, as you know, dating back to like the the the, the Whiskey Act of nineteen fifty. Something had to be defined to say, well, what what what's, what is Irish whiskey, so we can put it into legislation, so we can term this, uh, um, and then it went through the ages into the Act of 1980, and then going forward, the EEC at that time then decided to produce some sort of legislation to allow the Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey legislation to be harmonised under an EU level. So a document was produced, uh, a regulation uh, at that point in May 1989. So uh, it's EEC 1576-89. Oh, uh, riveting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's great stuff. Uh, which basically talks about, you know, defining what whiskey is, but also the first time you see uh, what they call then a geographic designation saying that, you know, uh, whiskey or Irish whiskey, Ishkabaha Ernoch Irish whiskey, uh, would be uh, categorised as something from Ireland. Um, and an interesting uh, point is that uh, it also says these designations may be supplemented by the words pot still. So you see this take place. Um, and then in 2008, the then EC drew up a document, regulation, basically wanting to lay out the geographic indications, as we've defined earlier, and then say, well, if the, for any GI that exists in the EU, we need to have a technical file to really specifically say what this is. So, you know, how do we define this liquid? Like, where did it come from? What were the processes required to produce it? You know, is there any historic precedent? Should you be allowed to have it? So, one of those, of course, is Irish whiskey, and the file uh, was produced, and this is where I think the debate and discussion, I suppose, uh, begins, quite frankly. So it basically defined in the production process that you couldn't have more than 5% of, of other grains, okay? So within the definition of pot still, it says you had to have a minimum of 30% malted barley, a minimum of 30% unmalted barley uh, within the mash bill, uh, with an allowance to have a maximum of 5% of other grains. And I think that's where the issue maybe appears. So as Fiona discussed earlier, there's references through history and time that uh, that is up for, you know, highlighting that, that that's not historically maybe uh, accurate. I think there's a, a fundamental fallacy in a lot of the way the current technical file has been defended. You know, once in a while bubbles up this argument, well, why don't Irish distillers or our dissenting Irish distillers, or anyone really, make a different mash bill and just call it Irish whiskey. And 
it kind of misses the point from first principles of having a category at all. You know, if you're going to call Irish pot still whiskey anything other than Irish whiskey distilled in a pot still, which is what the phrase semantically means, you're taking a recourse to history. And if you turn your back on that history, then all you're left with is, is single pot still, a branding term. And I mean, it has to be said, you know, single pot stills current producers make some of the best products in the world. And that can't be overstated. And I don't think this is really about in the long game, who's saying what, who thinks who did what at any given point, but it is a problem. And if you get rid of, if you disown its root expressions, you've lost the entire justification for having a category at all. Now, sometimes you hear it praised, oh, well, there's a generic Irish whiskey category, and this is this is where the, the interesting stuff can happen. This is not unique to Ireland. That's how it works in most places. You look at the American whiskey category. American whiskey usually means one of two things, stuff that didn't qualify to get the name bourbon or rye or some of the more protected American terms, or extremely innovative, wonky, distilled chocolate porter. But there is an awful lot of kind of papst whiskey at the bottom. And Irish whiskey, yes, it should have that open. I'd be upset if we didn't have space to make distilled chocolate porter. But when you are earmarking something as a heritage category, either you do that correctly or it's not a heritage category, full stop. And I think within that practice, you need, you know, again, there's the fallacy of legitimizing an argument that we're selling traditionality and that people might question it if we, you know, if we don't speak too uniformly and with too, you know, too much confidence. And again, that upsets me as a historian, but it also upsets me as a, as a drinker of, you know, red breast from, from before. And, you know, a lot of these whiskies are still poured. You know, they, they have a status in Irish whiskey fandom that would be comparable to, say, Stitzel Weller in American bourbon or Port Ellen in Scotch. There is an affection towards these drinks. And they're, the reason that Irish pot still has the fandom it does is that it is built on these precedents. And if you look back, I mean, bourbon's a very good example. You know, William Taft tried to legislate bourbon and, and did, really. The Taft administration standardized the whole 51% corn and above, it's a bourbon, 51% rye and above, it's a rye. It's a great, it's a fantastic. Didn't he also say 51% malt and above? It's is a malt whiskey, yes. So technically, 51% malt and above gives you the right to say American malt. Nobody's really pushing that hard, but if you wanted to... to Stir up a bit of news. <laughs> um, but I mean, that bourbon to rye split is almost musically simple. You know, where you have, say, Sazerac rye, which is rye whiskey. It's over 50% rye, but it's got a lot of maize kicking around in it. Or you get, say, bullet rye, which is well, 95% rye. Or you get, say, bourbon-like Four Roses. It's mainly maize, but you've got a whole lot of rye in there versus say like wild turkey would be considerably less rye versus say like Maker's Mark or Pappy Van Winkle, which have no rye whatsoever and have wheat instead. But these principles have stood the test of time. And you know, you can't, looking back at the old, especially if you're talking deep history, there's no way to accept everything. You know, I mean, especially the early mixed mashes, the malt content is terrifyingly low for very, very real reasons. They're dodging attacks. However, if, we take the American model as a precedent. And again, there's a lot of stuff that was historically called bourbon that wouldn't qualify today. But that decision, which was made within like three years of the 1908 report, which tried to do exactly the same thing over here, and then got muddled, it reached fairly inconclusive results in terms of 
Irish mash culture, we separated from Britain, etc. All this kind of floated into, into, into history. But if you look back at that argument, that's the last time a highly successful, adamantly Irish pot still mixed mash industry explained its practices to a government body. And it's funny, you get a number of distillers speak. Uh, the big one would be Andrew Jemison, who gives an outline of uh, broad Irish practice. And he says, tiny amount of rye, practically inappreciable, about twice that in wheat, about twice that again in oats. You know, roughly, again, kicking around, say, 5 to 10% wheat, oats more so, and then malt, around 80%. He's asked if a third other stuff would qualify. He says, absolutely. So if it had been left, you know, if you look at the broad history, if they just docked the 5% thing, you'd be close to a lot of the early stuff. Not, not bang on, but you would be close. Within kind of more contemporary history, post-malt tax, when you start seeing specific mash bills, you're, you're looking at about 30% other stuff. To be honest, if it was 30% of wheat, oats, and rye, the historical grains, you'd be very, very close. You'd certainly encapsulate everything from the last century, more or less. And um, certainly in, in spirit, maybe if you had lower malt contents. And then at the most conservative, if you got 20% other stuff, wheat, oats, and rye, you'd have what we were just drinking now. Um, but the current pitch does not does not ring true. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of uh, looking at those particular numbers uh, was of interest to me as to either not how exactly they were obtained, but how they set themselves out. And uh, particularly, at the, uh, the reason the file was put together uh, was to ensure that the EU had a file before uh, J uh, February 2015. So uh, the technical file, again, produced in October 2014, was submitted into the EU for review. Now, uh, reading the documentation, the Commission were say they were going to verify it within 12 months of the date of submission. Although uh, I think maybe why this suddenly become into the spotlight is earlier this year, around uh, uh, April, there were press releases saying, you know, it's fantastic to hear that the Irish uh, GI for Irish whiskey and the technical fine have been accepted by the European Union, which was a little surprising by, because of the file being produced back in 2014, was under the impression that perhaps the file was already sitting there. But and, and as far as I'm aware, other countries have now, like Japan, pre the their recognition of GIs, including which was at the time a big big deal, Irish whiskey, was touted long before April. So I, even in particular myself, I was very surprised come April time that this press release came out that said the yeah. GI is now protected because I I've been under the assumption or the understanding that it was accepted in 2014 that's that had been rubber stamped or accepted or gone through uh yeah i mean the, so what do the documents say on that then so so they say within 12 months uh so that there's a time period that seems to be uh, not correct there or led me to read a little bit more in depth and um, under that this particular uh, document okay so here's another EU regulation document. File there we go. Great. Oh, yeah. So uh, regulation <laughs> 110 slash 2008 of the European Parliament and the Council. Um, which is the of course the document we all know. The document we all know. Is, yeah, it's that, on the bedside table. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, and again, that's where the technical file was triggered. Article 17, which is the registration of a geographical indication. Within those 
particular article, it, it talks that if the commission concludes that the application referred to complies and the specifications of the technical file referred to in paragraph four, uh, which talks about the technical file structure, then it should be published in the official journal of the European Union C-Series. Now, the official journal of the European Union C-Series is another document uh, that you can basically download all of these from the EU website. And it was uh, published, it's uh, C115, it's volume uh, 62, and that was the 27th of March 2019. Perhaps what we'll do in perhaps the show notes on on the website potstill.com, where you'll be able to find this episode, uh, if you're listening on any of the the iTunes or Android uh, podcast services, you can go direct to the website and perhaps we'll have a, a, a link in kind of the show notes there for so a couple of these documents, documents for, yeah. yeah, for people yeah. to have a look themselves because yeah. obviously the EU doc, doc journal C-series C115 yeah, might, not, might not stick yeah. on the top of the, yeah. the mind there. Yeah. I mean, uh, actually, an, an interesting part of that is that, uh, you know, these documents are all referenced in the technical file themselves in one of the subsections as well because you have to basically say, you know, there's... Uh, what particular relevant uh, acts are are uh, under legislation? So under section six of the actual technical file itself, uh, it says uh, you know any requirements laid down by the community under national provisions uh, regional. So legislation, all of those. So all of these documents are actually listed down underneath that as well, which is how I was quite able to find them. So you basically go to look at the technical file and work your way back through that. And um, so again, so the, the idea that this is of more modern times rather than being set down in stone is, is of interest. Um, in particular, because the, the, the EU, everything, legislation is, is, a, is a moving thing. It keeps changing all the time. And I think the most interesting thing about this is that as a file has been registered and this particular technical file, there's a version of it uh, on the Department of Agriculture website, uh, or at least uh, it was available when I was researching the article. And it was updated uh, with the with the version of the file saying as registered by the EU Commission Services on the twenty seventh of March two thousand and nineteen. Um, now, there's some differentiations between that version of the file and the old file. I mean, it's mostly a reformatting, but there are some amendments to it. And I think maybe some of the key things of those are all about how the the definitions are are put together. So there's categories of Irish whiskey, which I think we all know. I hope we all know and love, but we'll talk about them. So there, uh, we've got single malt, single pot still, single grain, and blended. And the idea of the technical file and important to have it, it explains what all of those are. In the technical file dated 2014, it would explain what each of those characterizations was, and then it went through the production process individually for each of those. In the latest file that was registered, it just seemed to have moved some sections around somewhat and just categorised the Irish whiskies as we've discussed. And then it has a section uh, specifically talking about uh, the impact of production method on the final product. And all of those production processes from those categories that used to be stuck together have been pulled apart somewhat and put into a, a, a subsection. So um, so it's a, it makes for an interesting read uh, as to how those, uh, the, those changes have been made. The next version of the of the of the legislation from the EU is is also quite modern. So that's uh, basically in April two thousand and nineteen, a new regulation. Here we go. EU two thousand and nineteen slash seven eight seven. Ding 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 ding. ding. <laughs> uh, talks again, uh, basically saying that the previous 
version uh, of, the, of that regulation. Uh, in light of recent experience and technological innovation, market developments and evolving customer expectations, it is necessary to update the rules on the definition, description, presentation and labelling of spirit drinks and to review the ways in which geographical indications for spirit drinks are registered and protected. So this is a brand new regulation really and it's going to uh, repeal 110 slash 2008 for anyone keeping ding, notes. Ding, ding. Uh, uh, and it has quite a lot of articles explaining how the process uh, moving from one to another is going to be, take place. Um, it still defines, on a general level, these regulations define what whiskey is. And again, it just says a distillation of a mash made from malted cereals with or without whole grains of unmalted cereals. Again, it doesn't talk anything specifically about percentages or any other types of uh, grains. It's the actual technical file attached to our GI that will define that. And that's under our Department of Agriculture's control. They are the stewardships and ownerships of that file. So it's the EU has a generic GI over what defines whiskey and then what informs, I suppose, that GI yeah. is the technical file with the Department of Agriculture, as you see it. Yes, well, so the, so the EU have a, re- have to, let's say, here's a regulation uh, and this is how we'll define whiskey. And Ireland will have a, a specific GI for Irish whiskey. Uh, and then a technical file attached to RGI defining what Irish whiskey is. And this new, new uh, regulation has quite a lot of articles. It's actually a bit, an easier read, if you can imagine. Uh, 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 things like outlining the time frame for when the old regulation will be uh, repealed. It talks about it's going to continue protection for registered geographic indications. And importantly, uh, I think Article 22, it says what we've called a technical file, we're all going to be calling a product specification from now on. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. So, <laughs> so, there we go. so it's now a product specification. Um, technical file, we hardly knew you. <laughs> we hardly knew you, exactly. And um, Article 50 uh, then highlights the transitional measures from the old regulation. So there's particular points in there that say what old elements and what old articles and points of articles still hold true and there's some key points in there uh, as well Um, and one of the most interesting articles that sort of popped out at me trying to understand who owns all of these files and who are who can input into these basically article 23 says details that any group having legitimate interest may apply for approval of an amendment to a product specification and then it defines a group means any association, irrespective of its legal form, that is mainly composed of producers or processors working within the spirit drinks concerned. So that's any grouping uh, composed of producers or processors in that in dealing with Irish whiskey uh, can get together and propose an amendment to a technical file. So does the technical file or uh, product specification? Because the way that read to me was that interest body could change the EU standard of what whiskey or whiskey without an e or with an e depending how you want to go okay so no okay so maybe sorry i should clarify that sorry so this article uh, details that any group having a legitimate interest may apply for approval of an amendment to a product specification so uh, a group of producers or processors of irish whiskey in ireland can apply for an amendment to a product specification for say Irish pot still whiskey so pot still irish whiskey so if there's a group of producers all producing pot still irish whiskey they can perform a group and apply for an amendment. Uh, they'd have to go through the Department of Agriculture and apply that way. There's different types of amendments, so there's more detail in there. The file is, is ready for viewing. Uh, I don't want to go through the nitty gritty of every single item on it. But, no more uh, bells. There we go, no more <laughs> bells. I'm going to save you all. But it just shows that the, the legislation is moving on, that the 
the, the files themselves are of more recent timing uh, and the registration of them is of more recent timing than I had thought of uh, or realised and that uh, there's an opening there for, for different groupings or associations to form or get together to try and direct the, the, the conversation. I mean, it's completely understandable uh, that the quality of potstill expressions are maintained at the high level they're at at the moment. Um, um, I think the, the as Finn was alluding to as well earlier, it's to try and ensure that, you know, if we're saying this technical file slash product specification document is discussing heritage and um, uh, talking about uh, where Irish whiskey came from, um, it should allow innovation. Like there's so many distilleries uh, in Ireland now, many of them uh, producing pot still, all the different plant and equipment. And um, I mean, the original product specification or the original technical file was put together with the distilleries in Ireland at the time. So back in 2014, uh, or a little bit earlier as they worked on it for a year or two. But now it, there's a totally different landscape. And it's to try and ensure that, you know, uh, how do they approach producing a liquid that you could stand over and uh, that cont continues to have the quality that we're, we're used to and, uh, and love, but allow them to innovate and maybe try and have a historical or heritage pot still category or some other way of maybe analyzing the quality of the product rather than being so stringent on the inputs to the production process and see, does that work? Yeah, well, it just struck me. And again, like, it's funny because this is another embarrassingly poor belief argument that we often hear about the maintenance of the rather recent status quo is that anything else is going to open the floodgates for the horde and they'll pour in and, and you know, degrade the category. But I mean, under the current GI, for example, you could make 70% peated malt and 30% raw barley and age it in chestnut. And that could still be called Irish pot still, but this powers 1950s or this red breast or this bow street, they don't. So they're not, you know, it's a more complex scenario, I think, than it's been given credit for. And I think, again, American whiskey is a very helpful parallel where you have, like, literally, nobody is going to confuse Sazerac rye with Old Forester high rye bourbon. They do taste distinct. And I think the Kilbegan expression was a, was a good test of that. I mean, that calls itself Kilbegan rye begrudgingly, but it's not rye whiskey. It wouldn't qualify as rye whiskey in the US. It's not, oh, it's not majority rye. It's loaded with raw barley and malt. Uh, and that one in particular is interesting because it accidentally pressed it to the limits where you have about a third malt, a third raw barley, and the rest is rye. You have the, the spiciest, most aggressive adjunct of the three traditional ones. And of course, it tastes a lot more like pasta than it did like, you know, again, Sazerac, let alone pure rye, rye, like whistle pig kind of stuff. And I think, you know, when you allow for innovation to happen, you, you allow different kinds of innovation. Now, this is, this is a word that I always kind of get annoyed with, as, as excited as I am by the concept of innovation. It's thrown around you know, so loosely to refer to so many different, different things. And the idea that somehow, you know, again, off the wall distilled IPA in chestnut is somehow a threat to, to a standing GI or, you know, the implementation of this would somehow erode the validity of something. It's, it's based on faulty premises, basically. And it's funny, you know, what I think is going to happen or what I fear is going to happen is that all these mash bills aren't going away, you know, 
we can wish away history and certainly historical bottlings if if they're inconvenient, which I, I hope we don't do. They'll spring up in some craft distillery in Oregon or in Nevada, somewhere else. It's already happening. I get emails all the time from American craft distillers inquiring about very acute points of Irish mash bill history. They'll come of age, they'll be 7, 10, 12 years, and then we're going to lumber on afterwards saying, oh, well, oats are a unique feature of Irish pot still. And especially, you know, I think it's in the interest of the GI to accommodate the history as it happened, as it actually occurred. Because if you don't create secure foundations, what's going to happen is dissenting distillers will make things that they can't label single pot still. They'll undoubtedly make a big deal about not being able to do so. And then that far more than amending a technical file, as is done across GI practice all the bloody time, that will erode the legitimacy of the GI or of that particular segment of the pot still segment of the GI. You know, and I think, again, it is important if you're going to demarcate a style of whiskey to do it properly. And, you know, Ireland has an enormous mash bill heritage. And, you know, it's funny, the Illum pipes were introduced recently along with Neapolitan pizza uh, into UNESCO's intangible heritage archive. And what's funny about, you know, I was thinking the mash bill culture is intangible, but actually, no, it's highly tangible. These bottles are still there. You go to Cork Whiskey Society tastings, you go to tastings all over the place. These things are still tasted. You get the Willie Murphys of the world who know them intimately. And that can't be shoved out for the sake of inconvenience. And I think the longevity, not only of innovation, but of tradition, of the Irish position on the global stage. You know, you look at the way whiskey is moving, especially with craft distilleries. We cannot be Scotland light. You know, selling as, 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 as incredible as the malt whiskies coming out of Ireland are, there's a distinguishing point to the Irish tradition. And I think it's important that we celebrate We'll celebrate both, really, but celebrate it genuinely. And again, if you take, you know, you look at global distilling and you have like malt whiskey being made in places that aren't Scotland. You get obviously Japanese malt whiskey, but malt's coming out of Taiwan, out of Tasmania, etc. And that's a big part of the kind of the new world of whiskey. And the other big part is this kind of off the wall Wild West. The likes of, again, I think I mentioned Corsair either earlier in this talk or in the last one. But, you know, people making distilled quinoa and all this kind of fun stuff. And Irish whiskey has this, or Irish pot still has this unique ability to play on flavors that have been lost for ages or have faded out and are slightly recoverable in 50s bottlings and this kind of stuff and still draw it from tradition. We're getting the best of both worlds. And I think it's important to think about Irish whiskey as an actual piece of culture, not as something that we have to devise as a pitch for the EU to believe it. You know, we shouldn't feel threatened that if we talk more sincerely about this, somebody's going to suspect that, you know, it's not true. Because ultimately, it is true. And there is, and you know, there is an unbroken line between this red breast that I'm holding now and red breast 21. And it's, you know, it's, it's IDL's heritage as much as anyone's, if not, again, as I said before, infinitely more. And I think it's, this is an acute moment in time and it's imperative that we get it right because otherwise we're just going to be doing it in 20 years after everyone else has already done it. And much to that point, um, I think there was a shockwave sent through, I suppose, the industry a few years ago. I think it was the 
World Whiskey Awards, I think 2017, where an American distillery with an 1800s Irish mash bill of Emerald... Ransom. Yeah, the Ransom yeah. Distillery, the Emerald. Um, won best single pot still in the world. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely, and that was a strange one. Now, they did adjust the mash a little bit internally, but again, the concept is there, and it's not going away. And it's funny, a lot of the Americans working as consultants in Ireland have been very energetic about mash bill history. I speak to far more of them just in, in email correspondence, people who get in touch with me, than I would with, say, a lot of Irish or Scottish consultants within within the industry there is this fascination i think it comes from american crafters and there is a curiosity especially about things like oats that are so that become novelties and yet we're so so deeply rooted and you look at like what oats do to beer you know oatmeal stout oats were a thickening agent and you take some of these like oat rage or something well, that's a, an oddity in its own right but whiskies that have oats few in number though they are they do feel thick it's and it makes sense that it went hand in hand with raw barley and why even after that sieve effect of a five percent you go 30 percent oats you know you get for instance like rye is a a high yielding grain there's logic around all of these there's even a whole column still mash bill history that we've kind of forgotten we used to run like one third rye through a lot of the columns in ireland but again looking holistically at irish pot still if you want to call it something other than whiskey in a pot still. You're calling it Irish pot still. If we cannot take the definitions of Andrew Jemison, of Talbot Power, of even the people who made the column still stuff, you know, Andrew Virtue, Ed, William Gilby, if we turn our back on that, then it does become a device. It doesn't undermine the technical file to question. What undermines it is to have a technical file that illegitimately reflects the history that it's been awarded to protect. And that is far more dangerous than anything Peter Mulryan has to say on a blog. And I believe that it is imperative for every single member of the pot still producing community to at least be cognizant of the stakes. So, Brian, does that uh, interlude you into your next point, I suppose, on the, the technical files? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean the, the, one of the key elements of the technical file, rather than, statist- rather than statistics and uh, uh, percentages, is the history and reputation. Um, so um, th- there's a key element uh, outlined that when the technical file was put together, not only did it have to have a description of the methods for obtaining the spirit drink, but it also had to talk about uh, the link with the geographical environment or the geographical origin or the authentic and unvarying local methods. So uh, there's a section inside the actual file that specifies about percentages of grains have to be in, in, in pot still that goes all the way back to the sixth century, you know, uh, all about, uh, you know, uh, the water of life and where Ishkabaha came from and the red book of Asari and, uh, you know, so, the f- file itself, like for all of the definitions and technicality, it hinges on this history and reputation uh, being in place. And if the history and reputation of pot still is clearly showing a completely mixed mash of cereal grains, well, then is that not honest and relevant and true to this day? No, absolutely. And I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was up in Prony, the Public Records Office, Northern Ireland, the day I found the old Cumber material. Prony. Charlotte yeah. Watson. Yeah, Prony. The uh, that's what the cool kids are calling it in the in the archive scene. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> the um, uh, 
Jarlath Watson from Ecklenville Distillery took me out to the Duke of York and waxed enthusiastically about the rediscovery of the last Ulster pot still, which it was. And they're very interested in reproducing that. In fact, they may already be doing it recipe in a distillery down the road from Cumber itself and one day releasing that under the Cumber name. Now, in comparison to the level of, and it has to be said, there are embarrassing levels of twee, of faux heritage, of, again, blush-worthy paddywhackery coming out of the woodwork in terms of the history, the historicity of the Irish whiskey sales pitch. And some of that can make, you know, make you cringe. But when you see somebody genuinely engaging with the gastronomic history, with the birthright of the liquids in such a sincere fashion, the idea that that can't, 12 years down the line, be bottled as Cumber Pot still is deeply saddening. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, you know. And hopefully will be irrelevant. Hopefully this will all have, uh, have been fixed. So is one of the times you can hope that a podcast becomes antiquated quickly. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, Brian, do you want to dive us back into some more of the, uh, the technical stuff? Um, so, uh, as it stands at the moment with the, the, the technical file or what will be a product specification, still called a technical file at the moment, you c- can check and see uh, on the Department of Agriculture uh, back in May, uh, a new version of the file appeared and it says as registered by the EU Commission Services on the 27th of March 2019. Um, and it's available for anyone to download. I know we went on and had a quick look for it today, and it's just not on the web page at the moment. But uh, I'm sure we'll be back up soon. Hopefully, uh, back up shortly. Yeah. And it, uh, I mean, it's actually even a, a quite an interesting read for anyone to read it. Uh, and again, the reason why I started delving into this was listening to people talking about the history of this, and then when this topic came up, hearing contradictory information about what was in this file. Uh, so the easiest thing for anyone to do is to download it and read it and it's I mean there's even a, a little historical reference about four pages of history about Irish Irish uh, whiskey talking about what's the difference between grain and malt and pot still which is interesting for people who uh, might be experts in everything and um, to, to try and uh, see what's involved and um, but the, uh, the the main part of it is is that uh, you know th- this isn't a document that's set in stone um, it's a, it's it's a, a living breathing document um, and because of that EU regulation um, uh, saying that amendments are are available for any group to uh, to uh, put forth and um, it's important for people who are producing this spirit to know that and and read the file look at the the declaration in the, in the regulation and decide whether they want to, you know, say, well, actually, pot still is very important from a historical perspective. How do we solve this? Um, so if people want to keep a pot still uh, classification as to what pot still is in 2019 uh, or has been for the last couple of years, fair enough. But if you want to have a historically accurate version of pot still, well, as we've got categorizations for everything else, we could have a subcategory of pot still called heritage pot still. Let it stand on its own. Let it prove its quality and let the consumers decide whether they enjoy drinking it or not. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to prove whether 
it worked or not by think, people buying it. I think uh, Fanon might try to throttle you over creating a subcategory of the, <laughs> of the historical category yeah. with the historical <laughs> subcategory. But, uh, that's it. An interesting, uh, interesting, I suppose, bipartisan workaround. Uh, well, for yeah, I mean, that's for the that's for the that's for the industry to look at and see. Well, what's the best way of approaching this? Should we just completely? fix the file or should we subcategorize or have a new category or you know that's the the options are all options are available and i i will probably mention that uh neither of our two speakers this evening do work for any irish whiskey uh in uh, companies or as Fanon says have any controlling stake or any stake at all in any irish whiskey brands so this is very much the viewpoint from a author phd candidate and historian and from very interested party who has a, a, a very firm grasp on the technical files and as we've mentioned uh, will be uh, documenting all of this information in an upcoming uh, publication of the Irish Whiskey magazine which depending when they launch the magazine is either the last magazine that came out or the one that's just about to come out so it's always fun trying to guess those out and um, as I said we'll have these supporting documents up on potstills.com for anyone who wants to read them and I agree with you uh, Ryan that these are important documents for people to read especially those you know of, of vested interest um, so that they can understand uh, even you know there was a, a conversation that kind of went in in a myriad of circles that I was involved in on Twitter the other day um, whether or not you could whether or not pots single pot still without an Irish geographic designation was protected at all or whether or not you could, you know, in Ireland, in America, in somewhere that supported the EU GIs, create a single pot still, which I'm, I think, you know, the, the guys in like Talnua in Colorado, or, or as we mentioned earlier, the Emerald, I think that's kind of now sometimes played a little too much onto the, the, the Irish style, quote unquote, which puts you into a bit of trouble much like the beer producers in Belgium don't like you calling something a Lambic style or a Goza style, mm-hmm. because those are Goza and Lambic. Um, but, you know, that question came up and, and very much, you know, as a category, it seems to be single pot still, like single malt isn't tied to one country. But then you get into, I suppose, confusing territories where, you know, I think even industry in itself at the moment isn't really sure what is protected and what isn't and i think a lot of people were kind of caught by surprise that the gi was ratified and upheld in march of this year having the technical document written in 2014 to which we have had other nations agree or at least in principle that would protect it so even for myself i know sitting with you now no one can see this uh but there is a myriad of different uh technical files and historical research one side is is the history of, of Irish whiskey in, in oh, yeah. unmasked. And then we have, yes, rustling of papers. And then we have a ton of technical documents and a timeline, a lovely little timeline that uh, Brian's done it. And will this be in your... Um, That'll be in the magazine. Yeah. So this will be in the magazine. So it's a timeline that starts basically with the Spirits Act of 1880 and brings us all the way up till uh, April 2019. So you can literally follow... The, 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 the timeline of the technical documents that have informed Irish whiskey over the last, I suppose, 150 years and pushing and a little bit forward. Tick off all those regulation numbers as you listen to the yes, podcast. Yes, ding, ding, ding. Uh, bingo. Exactly. So I suppose if I could do a, you know, short synopsized, you know, closing point from each of you, you know, I've, I've, 
I quite, I've quite enjoyed this. It's probably the, the podcast where I've spoken the least ever. And it's very much two very different ends of the same discussion. You know, Brian, you came from a very, you know, literal technical document point of view, literally reading what was on the page just to kind of give it a, a voice and, and make it, I suppose, put it out there more, more tangible. And Fanon coming from the, the you know, the, the sheer historic side and, and trying to give the the lineage and the and the history of, of pot still a voice so if we're going to do a, a short synopsis uh fanon do you want to i suppose give us a, a wee closing point uh, just before we we sign off yeah i mean again everything i've found all the files comes from public <laughs> free resources and history is not going away and aside from history we can Debate about whether it's Irish whiskey's current obligation to be beholden to, say, Samuel Moorwood 1830s mash bills. But when we're talking about liquids that are still commonly poured, that are, again, the, the godfathers of their, of their being a category, if we don't have the integrity to actually do our homework and actually incorporate them into a definition there is a problem and i think the solutions are startlingly clear either you go with the 1950s definition put out by the distillers themselves shortly before two of them closed and three of them became one company and refocused onto blends or you go back to that 1908 commission or you go back to the victorians but any one of those is preferable to to the current rather arbitrary five percent and again i would like to see it capped at oats, wheat and rye, to be honest. They're very, very stated when they're talking about mash bills in Irish pot still distilling that they don't want maize run through a pot still, as opposed to column stills, which were flooded with maize and, again, bizarrely enough, rye. But there is a tradition there to be defended. And that would be my, my whole point is it's not about stakes or about who stands to gain. When you're talking about the purpose of geographical indication, whether it's champagne or Parmesan cheese, you are talking about gastronomic endeavours tagged to precedence. And we have the artefacts here. They are poured with great affection by people who were singing the praises of Potstill when the term single Potstill did not exist. And I think too often it can be alienating now between those who produce conformant distillates and those who are dissenting. And to be honest, I think it's heavily in the interests of both to have an actual talk. Must be a very interesting place to be to, you know, quote unquote, innovators to do exactly what your forefathers did a hundred <laughs> years ago. Uh, Brian, do you want to close us off, I suppose, from a technical point of view? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really trying to find a bit of, uh, trying to find a bit of common ground between uh, uh, all concerned. So, uh, I mean, th- this is a unique category of whiskey, like uh, Irish pot still whiskey. So pot still whiskey on a global stage uh, as it's, re-establishing itself across the world and different brands are being pushed uh you know people are going to recognize this term more and more so it is important to have this quality first and foremost but to allow all of these burgeoning exciting young distilleries with different types of equipment and uh, different ideas to be allowed to you know hark back and use the heritage that this file pivots on uh, I think is really important and I hope they have an opportunity to sit down and read the uh, read the document and certainly happy to sit down and have a chat with anybody if they want to. Cool so I suppose that has been a very interesting discussion kind of highlighting two very different sides just a 
I think leads leads to a lot of room for discourse, I think. And while there is discourse out there, I think there needs to be, I suppose, more clarity on even what we're having discourse about. Um, exactly, yeah. So, as I said, all those documents will be up on postal.com with, with this podcast. And I suppose for this episode... I'll say thank you very much, gentlemen. Fanon, thank you very much for inviting us into uh, Shea O'Connor and uh, <laughs> inviting us to join you in some absolutely fantastic historic whiskies. And Ryan, thank you for taking your time out of your day to come out and share with you the knowledge. And if anyone does want to check out, I suppose, you know, importantly, Fanon's book, uh, Glass Apart, which is kind of details a lot of the, the history of, of single pot still whiskey, you can also check that out. And uh, when your article's coming out in the Irish Whiskey magazine, dependent on when you're listening to this podcast, it's either <laughs> antiquated library somewhere or it's just about to come out next month. <laughs> uh, so, gentlemen, I suppose all I have to say is Gramila Magat. Thanks, Rob. Gramila Magat,